So this morning we are going to continue in our uh, studies of the life and the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And I am aware that it is some uh, seven weeks since uh, we were last looking at uh, Elijah. So uh, a wee brief recap, I think, is, is in order. So far, what we've done is we've considered the historical background to Elijah's ministry, namely the absolutely atrocious reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And the drought that Elijah pronounced as um, a divine punishment upon um, Israel for their apostasy under the guidance of that dreadful royal duo. And having uttered his message of judgment, Elijah had, had absconded, uh, first of all, to the Kareth Ravine, where he was miraculously sustained by the ravens. And then secondly, to Zarephath, where he was given lodgings by um, a destitute widow whose son, uh, Elijah, would actually restore to life. And that's really where we left off then um, seven weeks ago. So we're picking up our story uh, then in chapter 18. And in chapter 18, Elijah is going to have an encounter with someone who actually um, has received a very mixed press amongst Christian commentators, namely Obadiah. Now, that is not the Obadiah of the Old Testament book. That's, that's a different Obadiah. Some have denounced our Obadiah that we're going to be meeting this morning. Some have denounced him as a worldly compromiser, whereas other commentators actually praise him for uh, being a secret believer. F.B. Meyer is amongst Obadiah's strongest critics, accusing him of lacking moral backbone. A.W. Pink takes the opposite position and co commends Obadiah for his shrewdness and his risk-taking for the sake of God's kingdom. Roger Ellsworth, uh, another of the commentators that I uh, looked at, he, fi he uh, finds himself where I admit I often find myself sitting on such matters, namely on the fence. <laughs> he describes Obadiah as, I love this, Faithful, but faint-hearted. Faithful, but faint-hearted. So, it's time for you and I to uh, meet Obadiah this morning, and then you can make your own mind up as to which side of the fence you come down on. So, our reading um, is taken from First uh, Kings chapter 18, and we're going to be reading the first 16 verses. So 1 Kings chapter 18, first 16 verses. 
After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were uh, to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? Asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So we're going to look at our study, our text, really, in in three stages. First of all, we're going to look at the first six verses under the title of Obadiah and Ahab. And then secondly, we'll look at verses 7 to 16 under the title of Obadiah and Elijah. And then thirdly, we'll look or we'll try to derive some lessons that we can then apply to ourselves as Christians living in 21st century Northern Ireland, or perhaps even beyond these shores. So, verses 1 to 6, Obadiah and Ahab. 
Elijah, remember, had been sojourning in Zarephath in Sidon. But now, around three years since the drought affecting Israel had begun, the Lord commands his servant to go and present himself to King Ahab with the message that the rain is going to fall again on the land. And so Elijah sets off on his return journey. But before Elijah appears in the court of Ahab, he runs into Obadiah. How did that happen? Well, given the severity of the famine that had afflicted the land as a result of drought, Ahab had summoned Obadiah and drew up a plan whereby Obadiah would be dispatched in one direction through the land to seek out water from its springs and valleys. And he, Ahab, would go in the opposite direction to do likewise. Of course, it shouldn't be lost on us that Ahab, that most wicked of kings, was doing this not for the benefit of his people. It was for his own selfish purposes. He simply wanted to keep his animals and livestock alive so that he could feed his own belly. And he certainly gives no indication that the drought-induced famine is making him rethink his idolatry, which, of course, was the reason that lay behind the drought. For as we have seen, as we have previously noted, the denial of rain was a divinely imposed judgment for the Baalism that Ahab and Jezebel had introduced into Israel's religious and national life. As Mayer writes, Ahab was seeking for grass instead of seeking for God. There is absolutely no hint of any remorse or any repentance on Ahab's part. And it was then in following Ahab's command that Obadiah runs into the prophet Elijah. So who was this Obadiah? We were told in verse 3 that he was in charge of Ahab's palace. That is, he was the governor of Ahab's royal household. So, you know, understand he held a very senior position in government. But we're told something else in verse 3, namely that he was a devout believer in the Lord. And not only that, Obadiah had defied Queen Jezebel in her genocidal attack upon the Lord's true prophets by secreting 100 of them into two caves, 50 in each, and ensured that they were kept alive by seeing to a steady supply of food and water. Obviously, Obadiah had taken a huge risk. If what he had done 
had come to Ahab and Jezebel's attention, then there would really have been only one outcome. He would have been, as we say in this province, titty bread. Hence the ambiguity that many feel towards Obadiah. He shows real courage and loyalty to Yahweh in hiding the prophets. Yet, he is at the very epicenter of such a cruel and idolatrous regime. And our feelings of ambiguity are likely to be intensified as we come now to our second section, verses 7 to 16, Obadiah and Elijah. As Obadiah is fulfilling his part of the scouting mission to seek out water in response to Ahab's directive, he then runs in to Elijah. And note the deference that he, and remember he is a senior figure in Ahab's government, the deference that he pays to Elijah. He bows before Elijah and he refers to him as my, small case L, my Lord Elijah. But Obadiah reacts with a mixture of incredulity and fear when Elijah demands that he go tell Ahab that he has found the prophet. As far as Obadiah is concerned, if he reports that this news back to the king, he could very well be signing his own death warrant. For ever since Elijah had fled from Ahab's presence three years previously, having pronounced the Lord's judgment upon the land, Ahab had been searching for Elijah, not only in all of Israel, but in surrounding lands as well. And where a neighboring nation claimed to know nothing about, uh, nothing of, Eli of Elijah's whereabouts, Ahab demanded that they swear on oath, stating that they were not telling, to use more slang, this time Cockney, porky pies. So we've now had titty bread and porky pies, which is beginning to sound a bit like my dad. <laughs> No doubt, no doubt the inference was that if these other nations were found to be telling a lie, and in fact Elijah was ensconced in their territory, and they hadn't either conducted a proper search, or worse, they knew that Elijah was in their territory, but they hadn't extradited him. That would be regarded as justifiable grounds for severe reprisals, even for the declaration of war. Obadiah's reasoning is that if he reports back to Ahab that he has found Elijah, but when the king comes to meet Elijah, Elijah repeats his vanishing act of three years previously then Obadiah is for the chopping block. What have I done? Is Obadiah's lament, or really, what have I done, Elijah, to deserve this? 
And Obadiah then engages in a bout of righteous self-justification. Don't you know, Elijah, that I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth? Interpretation. Elijah, since I was a young lad, I have sought to honor and obey Yahweh, your God and mine. Obadiah continues, haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. Interpretation, Elijah, I have been active in serving Yahweh. I have taken enormous personal risk in hiding his prophets. Obadiah then remonstrates. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Interpretation. Please, Elijah, don't make me do this. I don't deserve it. I do not deserve to die. As I've said, our feelings of ambivalence towards Obadiah are unlikely to have been allayed by this encounter with Elijah. We balk at his self-justifying defense and we observe his apparent cowardice as he seeks a way out of having to follow through with Elijah's demands. And yet, we acknowledge his bravery in shielding the prophets and we understand his reasoning and his fear for his own life. And when push comes to shove, Obadiah did what Elijah asked of him. Ultimately, Obadiah was prepared to believe Elijah's promise that he would not flee from Ahab, but would meet the king this very day. And so Obadiah returned to Ahab's palace and reported on Elijah's whereabouts and on the prophet's willingness to meet the king. Thus, whilst Obadiah was certainly not on a par with Elijah, perhaps there is more to admire than to criticize. As Dale Ralph Davis comments, we shouldn't sit in our comfortable study chairs and berate Obadiah because he is not Elijah Jr. And so we come to the favorite part of my talks, the lessons that are to be learned. And this week, there are three. Three lessons. Number one, the Lord has his people in surprising places. The Lord has his people in surprising places. As we have seen, Obadiah was at the apex of Ahab's royal administration, something that has raised a few eyebrows amongst Christians. We naturally ask, how could he serve such a wicked tyrant? And it's understandable that we feel uneasy about this. Indeed, some have then lambasted Obadiah as a compromiser who put his career above his allegiance to Yahweh. Yet, as we have also seen, 
Obadiah used his position of influence to protect the lives of some 100 of Yahweh's prophets. Um, Jezebel had tried to kill all of Yahweh's prophets, all of the true prophets of Israel, and he had protected the lives of 100 of them. The fact is that God's people do pop up in the most unlikely of places. Think of Joseph, who rose to the rank of prime minister in Pharaoh's government. For a time, Moses, who's already been mentioned this morning, Moses was to be found in a different Pharaoh's household. Likewise, Daniel and his three mates were located in high office in Babylon, that most cruel of empires. Indeed, Daniel was prime minister under several Babylonian emperors. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the Persian emperor Artaxerxes, another evil regime. And in New Testament times, the apostle Paul in Philippians 4 verse 22 passes on greetings from the saints, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. When Ronnie McCracken was last with us in Castlereagh Fellowship, he took us to Acts 13 verse 1, where we're told that one of the church elders at Antioch was Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. That is Herod Antipas, or that fox, as Jesus disparagingly referred to him, a most cruel individual. Not the most likely background for someone who would then convert to Christ and occupy a key position in church government. I'm also reminded, although I must admit I tried my best to find where I had read this without success, but I know that I read this at one stage, um, a story from the, the, the life of Eric Little. Do you remember Eric Little, Chariots of Fire, the famous Olympian, you know, who wouldn't run on a Sunday but won the gold medal in what was it, a different um, 400 meters, whatever it was, I can't remember. But um, he then became a missionary, uh, a missionary to China. And Eric Little tells the story of on one occasion where his luggage was being uh, searched by the, um, uh, a soldier in the invading Japanese imperial, imperial army. And Little watched on nervously as the soldier rummaged through his belongings and the soldier picked out Little's Bible and looked at him and said, you Christian? And smiled at him and bid him on his way. Even in the most unlikely places, Christians can be found. Sometimes they choose to remain as secret believers as it's simply too dangerous for them to reveal their allegiance. 
And Elijah himself was going to learn this lesson in a later day because Elijah, as we'll see, I think it's next week, would lament the fact that I am the only true believer left in all of Israel. And God had to remind him, actually you're not. There are 7,000 others, or 6999 others, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Never think that God cannot have servants, no matter how inauspicious the circumstances. Secondly, the Lord's people will perform good works. The Lord's people will perform good works. And this really is the complement to the previous point. Whilst, yes, believers might keep their faith to themselves in certain very restricted contexts, their lives will still be earmarked by acts of goodness. Obadiah risked his neck to save the lives of 100 fellow believers. And there have been some truly heroic actions on the part of secret believers throughout history. You see, whilst Christians might be found even amongst terrible regimes, you know, even as they're just because of where they live, you know, I'm rem- as I was thinking about this, you know, very conscious, for instance, of one of the missionaries that we support in Castlereagh Fellowship in the far east of Russia. And his son has just been called up to serve in Putin's army. There's not an easy one for a believer. But Christians will still do their best to restrain evil. And we should pray that they are afforded great courage and be willing to take personal risks for the sake of God's kingdom. What is not acceptable is for a Christian to be found among such a regime and just go with the flow, freely participating in acts of evil. For remember, it is always better to obey God rather than men, even if that leads to the forfeiture of your own life. Thus, whilst believers may in certain contexts have to act in secret, they will behave with what Don Carson calls hidden faithfulness. Hidden faithfulness. And thirdly and finally, the man and woman of God keeps his or her word. Obadiah was concerned that Elijah would flee and then that he would pay the price of the prophet's non-appearance before the king. But Obadiah needn't have worried. You see, Elijah gave Obadiah his word that he would stick around. As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. That was a solemn undertaking. Elijah was swearing by God's name that he would fulfill his side of the bargain. And such integrity 
and faithfulness to our word should always characterize God's people. As the Apostle James wrote, let your yes be yes and your no, no. James 5 verse 12. I would suggest that few things do more despite to a Christian's reputation than an inability to keep our word. Breaking our promises. Letting others down by a no-show. So, if you want one very, very practical exhortation coming out of this morning's study, it's this. If you commit yourself to something, if you say you're going to do something, then, as Nike would have it, just do it. Just do it. Let's, like Elijah of old, be people of our word. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.